Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Chris O'Connor, the uh, principal investigator of the Heartfiller Collaboratory, and we're here with Heart of the Matter, which is the HFC podcast. And I'm with my very distinguished friends and colleagues to talk about an exciting session that we had last week on subgroups and subpopulations, special populations, and really how do we handle these in clinical trials today. And um, I want to just introduce my uh, distinguished colleagues before we jump into the the heart of the matter of subgroups. Uh, Bill Abraham, who is a professor at Ohio State University, Joanne Lindenfeld, professor at Vanderbilt University, uh, Scott Solomon, professor at Harvard uh, Medical School, Brian Claggett, senior statistician at Harvard, and Mitch Sopka, chief of heart failure at the uh, Nova uh, Health System, and Mona Fuzat who is a uh, member of the Duke University faculty and also a member of the Food and Drug Administration. Welcome all to uh, Heart of the Matter. We had this session on Friday where we talked about subgroups and special populations. And really, we talked about, first of all, terminology, which is so important in clinical trial conduct. And uh, when we, we got a group together and said, okay, what's, these terms are different and, and they matter. And when we talk about subgroups, we're talking about characteristics in a clinical trial population that can be measured and that can be organized in a fashion for a particular analysis. And so when we talk about subgroups, we're talking about characteristics such as age, ejection fraction, uh, maybe biomarkers, natriuretic peptides. It could be a genetic profile. They could be comorbidities such as the presence or absence of diabetes but they are different than when we talk about special populations such as cardiac amyloidosis, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and genetic cardiomyopathies in which there are actually a pre-specified hypothesis on why that population of patients may respond differently or uniquely in a clinical trial. And so I think as we start this conversation, we want to make sure that we're understand uh, the difference between uh, subgroups and special populations. And I'll turn to Scott Solomon to, to make some of the uh, first comments on, you know, we've done a large number of trials. Uh, many of us in this room have been involved in many trials. And we conduct a trial, we try it, we set up a pre-specified subgroups, usually 10 or so that we're going to do an analysis on. And then we come to the end of the trial and we look at these, and some are interesting and some are not, but how do we get more rigor in thinking about subgroups, and how do we prioritize ones that may be of particular interest to the audience? Yeah, Chris, that's a great question, and, and we one we tackled, I think, uh, on Friday to a large extent when we do a clinical trial, we usually are asking one particular question. That's our, our primary hypothesis. We're, we're determining whether we can reject, essentially reject the null hypothesis for one specific question overall in that study. And then we, as you said, divide our population based on a whole lot of different groups, men and women, diabetes, no diabetes, older, younger, et cetera. Uh, we may have 10 of these or 15 of these or 20 of these in a trial. And then we usually report those 
data in our primary manuscript. We do that uh, primarily to look for consistency. But occasionally, we see evidence of heterogeneity. Occasionally, we look at these data and we say, wow, the people with blue hair behave differently than the people with green hair. And uh, we have to ask ourselves, is that a real finding? Is it statistically robust? What does it mean? Uh, what does it mean for the therapy that we're testing? And the implications are different, of course, if the trial is dairy positive or maybe marginal. It's It may be different based on the extent of the benefit that we see in a particular subgroup. And then the, the real question is, when do we really believe it? And can we believe it enough to act on it? Or do we have to go and do a whole another trial. And so we we presented data, uh, we presented a, 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 some concepts, some data from trials that we all know well on Friday that included three important heart failure trials, the Paradigm trial, the Paragon trial, both with Sartan, and then the Galactic HF trial. And I guess we also presented uh, some data from the Deliver trial as well. And um, I'm going to turn over in a second to Brian Claggett to to describe uh, these a little bit better because he presented these these data and actually served as the primary statistician for most of these studies. But we have examples of a trial where all the subgroups look pretty much the same, and we have a trial where there are examples where the subgroups look different. Uh, where it, we wonder if, in fact, there's some group that works better than others. And these can be very different. And the interpretation can be very different. Brian? Yeah, I think our, I mean, our starting example was we showed Paragon and Paradigm. It was the same you know, drug being investigated in both, and just one and reduced EF heart failure, the other one in preserved EF. And we kind of started from the the normal forest plot figures where you see all two dozen or three dozen or however many subgroups that you've got. And and I guess our standard practice has been to do an interaction test, you know, for every subgroup variable and to maybe we get to include that on the forest plot, maybe not, but you somehow report either, you know, there were this many number of significant interaction tests and then somebody afterwards has to decide how much they care about those p-values because invariably you'll find one or two that are a little bit below 0.05 and then it kind of becomes this clinical and statistical argument where if you found something that you didn't expect then we argue about well is it a false positive or if we didn't find something that we kind of did expect and we say oh well we were underpowered and if you did find something you did expect, and you can say, "Yeah, I knew that was exactly what was going to happen." But the, you know, it, it's kind of a a game that we play afterwards. But we we don't really know exactly what we should be uh, taking away from these forest plots. And I, I think that's one issue that we need to get better about is is how much we can expect to learn from these things, knowing that you are likely going to find something that looks significant, and when you should react to that or not react to it. Um, and so in, in Paradigm, I think we broadly uh, interpreted those results as very consistent benefit across all the subgroups. In Paragon, we interpreted there as being some plausible, reasonable sense of, of heterogeneity. 
largely based on ejection fraction. And Brian, I think you nicely shared with the audience during that uh, our our think tank the rigor you have to think about when you're looking at whether a signal is real or noise when you're looking at subgroups, which I think is just a fascinating. You know, I always remember the the ISIS one trial and Peter Slight saying that he he showed that the thrombolytic therapy in anchor aspirin, I think it was aspirin, it was a factorial design had its highest effect in Sagittarius and its lowest effect in Aquarius because they tested for astrological signs, but they had done, like you said, hundreds of uh, subgroups. And so what is the rigor that a clinical trial team must put around those interaction terms of those subgroups? Like you said, if you have an O5, we get excited about an O5. I get excited about a 0.1 for an interaction term because it's so underpowered. But really, when you've done 20 comparisons, you know, Bonferroni's, Professor Bonferroni's going to turn over in his grave, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. You're almost guaranteed to, to find something significant at that point, right? Yeah. No, I, I, I think. Usually in clinical trials, we kind of defer to type one error and say we want to go out of our way to avoid false positive findings. And so if if something is underpowered, we say, well, that's too bad. You should have designed a bigger trial or designed another trial. And and uh, you know if it, if it's real, you'll find it again in the the next study. And so we, I think, type one error usually is our primary concern. And so one of the proposals, knowing that. There's always this, this multiple testing issue when you go down your list of subgroups. Is there is this you know, global interaction test that has been used a couple of times, in particular in Paragon, and we've said, well, instead of going through and testing every single subgroup, why don't we do a single overall test for heterogeneity for you know effect modification, and if you can pass that test at the 0.05 level then you're at least allowed to continue on talking about mm -hmm. people who respond better or worse than other people. But if you can't pass that first test, then we should just stop and, and not torture the data any further. So I, I think that was maybe the the first thing that we can think about implementing and, and using as a way to, to gauge how much we should trust any of these findings. Right. What, I, uh, what about the fact that, that many of these subgroups that we look at are correlated with other subgroups so that when we we look at them individually, we're only seeing one one dimension. But often when we look at them together, we'll see that, you know, there may be, for example, more women in the high ejection fraction category or vice versa. That might be actually what's driving the subgroup. And your approach that we took in in Paragon, for example, where you used a multivariable model to include all the interaction terms and the covariates does account for that, correct? Right. I think that's the. I think there's two possible scenarios you can imagine. I, I know one one scenario that comes up. You know, we didn't talk about this on Friday, but occasionally you'll see regional interaction. Right. Most studies have four or five geographic regions. <laughs> does appear to be something different by region. The explanation is always, well, it's not region, it's that the BMI was different or this region enrolled younger patients. You know, it's always that that's a confounder or you're know, masking something else. And and so if you 
do have all the variables in the same model, in theory, that regional effect would go away and it would be more present in whatever variable is actually responsible for the uh, the difference. In Paragon, we kind of had the opposite example where we had two potential effect modifiers. We had sex and we had EF. And so conceivably, it could have been that, you know, knowing that these two things are correlated with one another, maybe they were both appearing marginally significant, but the signal was actually being driven by one more than the other. It turned out that it was actually both were independently more significant that the um, the women in the trial in Paragon generally had higher EFs, the men had lower EFs, and that when you put both in the model, you could see that it was women were responding better despite their higher EFs. Patients with lower EFs were responding better despite being a more male-dominated cohort, and so it, it was really by putting both in the same model that you had more confidence in both of those findings. The other thing we, sorry, oh, go ahead, Scott. No, I was going to say the other thing we learned from that exercise was that when we when we categorize some of these things that are essentially continuous measures, we lose power. And <laughs> um, when you look at them continuously, like ejection fraction, you end up uh, gaining power. And so one of the uh, the tricks would be to look at the continuous variables, things like ejection fraction, GFR, age, as continuous variables rather than as categorical, arbitrarily cut variables. I like that. I mean, I think we're getting to a place where we can standardize the approach, which is, I think, what your team has done, but it's not done uniformly. Let's pretend that we are an advisory panel uh, with Dr. Abraham and Dr. Lindenfeld, and the regulators are Dr. Fuzad and Dr. Sapka, and Dr. Claggett and Dr. Solomon are the investigators, and they came to you with Paragon, their heart filler preserved EF trial, finished with an overall p-value on the primary endpoint of 0.06. Brian did this fancy... 0.058, please. 0.058. Don't make the trauma any worse than it was. <laughs> 0.058. And Scott has a T-shirt in that room in his office somewhere that uh, has that. But uh, and Brian did this fancy, you know, global test on the uh, subgroups, and it was highly statistically significant. The global, so he went down, and they found that sex and EF were the interaction terms were uh, highly important, and that there was more effect in uh, greater signal and the lower end of preserved EF and, and, and women. And they got a label uh, enhancement based on that 06. Now, Joanne and Bill, how do you feel about that? They had a negative trial. Brian comes in with all this fancy hoopla, statistics and global chunk tests and this way and that way. And before we know it, there's a label enhancement. Yeah, think they got it right. You know, I, I after looking at it, I think they got it right. But I think there's always a little bit of question when you you have an initially negative trial. And but I I think other data sort of supports it. And as we we look for other supports and other studies, I think we see more support of that. So I think as we see other things, like for instance with 
with the uh, mineral core card receptor antagonists and other things that sort of look similarly, then we start to believe it even more. So, yeah, I think, I think for me, Chris, the challenge is in the biological plausibility. And, uh, you know, we see some agents that are effective in the HEFPEF population across the full spectrum of HEFPEF ejection fractions like SGLT2 inhibitors. And then we see others such as uh, an ARNI uh, or perhaps a mineralic corticoid receptor antagonist that seems to demonstrate diminishing returns with uh, increasing ejection fraction. And, you know, I think, I think without a confirmatory study, we, we've really got to put this together in some biologically plausible story. That may exist. Some have advanced it. But, uh, you know, that, that is one of the potential, I think, for me, prerequisites of interpreting subgroup analysis is to understand whether or not, uh, you know, this is founded in, in some biological reality. Well, you know, Chris, uh, you know, I, I would make an argument that uh, we shouldn't probably use such a binary term like positive or negative study. The difference between a, a p-value of 0.06 and 0.04 is negligible. We're really talking about a few events on either side. So to argue, you know, that if we had had seven, it would have been seven more events going the other way in this trial with thousands of events we would have had a quote-unquote positive trial, everything would have been different. That doesn't make a whole lot of scientific sense. But, uh, I, you know, I think we this it, what is clear is that this wasn't an incredibly robust treatment effect in the, in the Paragon trial. And the reason we think it, that was the case is because it worked better in some people than others. I think the plausibility thing was so important there because... It wasn't just about the statistics. It was about the fact that we had just done a, another 8,500 patient trial called Paradive in, in, in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. That was the adjacent population. So everything kind of kept going as you went up in ejection fraction. We had seen the exact same thing with mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists and TopCAD and uh, candesartan in the CHARM trial. So neurohormonal agents that petered out as ejection fraction went went up. And so I think if it were just the statistics, I would agree 100% that we really have to be very circumspect about that. You know, when, when we saw that result, we got very nervous about the trial that was ongoing at the time we were doing called DELIVER with uh, the SGLT2 inhibitor dapagliflozin. And so what we ended up doing was changing the primary endpoint to split alpha between the patients in the overall group and the patients in the subgroup with an ejection fraction under 60%. We were able to divide the alpha between those two groups. And then uh, we thought we were so clever having done this, and it turned out not to matter at all. <laughs> the, the benefit did go across the spectrum. And, and, you know, Bill, I don't know why that is the case with SGLT2 inhibitors, but they're not neurohormonal modulators. They're different, certainly different types of drugs. And I believe behave differently from, you know, the, the vasodilator neurohormonal type drugs that we've been using for so many years. But that is one way you could prospectively do that. You can choose a subgroup and then apply some alpha. And, and Brian also presented some 
suggestions for how you might do that, either by being really smart and knowing which subgroup you want to choose, or by doing it more agnostically and uh, ascribing some alpha to some heterogeneity and then figuring out after the fact where that heterogeneity actually exists. Yeah. Look, I, you know, I think in the case of Paradigm Paragon, uh, the totality of data, including a p-value of 0.058, you know, really favored approval. And I would have voted for approval on that basis without, uh, you know, all of the subgroup analyses anyway. Uh, you know, I think we have to look at the big picture in these clinical trials as, as we think about their, their outcome, particularly in HEFPEF, where, where there is a large unmet need and few proven therapies that improve outcomes. And, and uh, Mitch and Mona, the regulatory viewpoint, did, did, did Scott get that correct? I'm going to defer to Mitch on this. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to put on a hat um, that is mostly regulatory and say that in this case, in the case of Secubitrol Valsartan, there, there were a number of things going for it that were not just the, the subgroup. As was mentioned, it was an adjacent population, although there was a five percentage point ejection fraction range that was uh, left out. But uh, there was a closely adjacent population. But I think also very supportive were the re-adjudication analyses. The primary adjudication by the trial, site PIs was supportive, and then the blinded re-adjudication uh, was very supportive. And I actually think that that was probably more of what drove the ship than the fact that it was you know, a subgroup or anything else. I think that it was viewed overall as a positive trial once those uh, re-adjudication procedures were put in place. I, I do think that all the other supportive data was very helpful, that you saw a consistent trend uh, and all these issues, but I think truly it was that the trial was probably considered to be positive overall, actually, uh, much more in line with what Bill mentioned, I think, than, than that there was some cohesive way to view this subgroup analysis as opposed to all others where we would typically want another trial to prove that it was truly effective in the subgroup. Well, and look, it, you know, and the, the FDA didn't restrict the expanded label for the higher EF group, right? And I think that speaks volumes to really what influenced uh, FDA's decision. And that's, uh, you know, in contrast to, for example, and we also talked about this uh, you know, during the workshop, uh, the made it CRT trial, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which uh, looked at the heterogeneity and response introduced by cure restoration and QRS morphology. And, uh, you know, both supported from the data analysis and also from the standpoint of biological plausibility, that is, you know, how does one postulate CRT or resynchronization therapy improving patients with for example, a pure right bundle branch block. Mechanistically, it's a bit of a stretch to think about how that you know, might work. Uh, and so the data and the biological plausibility fell together. And in fact, uh, you know, the label uh, acknowledged that limitation. But let's dive into that one. Thanks for bringing that up, Bill, because that's, that was the other really fascinating trial that we discussed. And Joanne, you were part of that an initiative. Made it CRT. Give us a, a little bit of an overview. You, you studied a, over a thousand patients. You had a very positive effect in class two, three heart failure on the endpoint of heart failure events. 
plus mortality, all driven by heart failure events. And then the company and the, the leadership said there's this subgroup where the signal is even greater, even though it was a like 0.006, I think, on the and a hazard ratio was pretty strong on the primary. They said we we want to even narrow it further to the QRS greater than 150, which was about 40% of the population. And that's where it landed. Yeah, I think in the presentation that wasn't initially the company prior to the presentation wanted to present those data and narrow the indication. And the FDA and their wisdom and their frequently right said, no, we don't want you to narrow it. You can present it all, but we, we would don't want you to narrow it. So I, I think that was how it was presented. And, you know, I, I think as we discussed, there's still some questions about that. But I think overall, other data has suggested in addition to, as Bill said, the biologic plausibility of left bundle, clearly that is the group that benefits the most. But there are probably other benefits, but the group that benefits the most. But, you know, interestingly, that was not even a pre-specified subgroup for made it no, seem. it wasn't. Absolutely. That was, that was a post hoc finding. Oh, interesting. I didn't, I didn't yeah. realize that. That's, That's amazing. Right. And it didn't come out in their primary presentation and paper. It came out subsequently. Well, the panel asked, they didn't present the data even to the FDA. The panel that asked that to present those data. Okay. Yeah. And, but the p-value for that subgroup was very small. Right. It was very now, Dr. Fuzat, you asked the think tank panel to vote on that, whether they would approve CRT for the overall population, yes, no, or would they approve it for just the subgroup QRS greater than 150? And do you remember what that vote count was? I think the majority went with the whole population. They did. They did. And mm -hmm. and I think Brian raised his hand for the overall population. I'm not <laughs> sure about that. No. <laughs> You're a subgroup guy, Brian? You like subgroups? I do, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you vote yeah. just for subgroup? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think if... if heterogeneity is there, we should care about it regardless of whether the trial was overall positive or overall marginal or overall neutral. And I, I think, I don't know, I, I feel like part of the problem that we've gotten into is that there are some scenarios where we don't talk about subgroups or we don't talk about heterogeneity at all. And that means that we only talk about it when there's a borderline trial and that gives uh, the whole bad reputation to subgroups as a whole because it feels like it's something that we're trying to claw back a, a non-significant or a, a neutral study. And I, I think we just, I think we should always care about heterogeneity. And Chris, are we are we not trying to to do a better job with personalized medicine and cardiology? No, uh, you know, we, we, we don't really. I mean, most of our trials, uh, most of our therapies are based on fairly broad populations. But I think we we really do have to start thinking about which patients are going to gain the most benefit from the drugs that we use. We could probably go back and look at this with lots of the therapies that we've used for the last 20, 25 years, and there are probably people who are going to benefit a lot more than others uh, and and maybe be harmed less than others because these aren't always benign therapies. Yeah, I think... Right. I I'm sorry, Chris. Oh, go ahead, Bill. Yep. Yeah, I was just going to pose the question. Uh, you know, when 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 are confirmatory trials, uh, you know, really appropriate here? Uh, we may be limiting effective therapies for patients who may benefit 
and in other cases, uh, you know, we might declare a trial negative when there is a large positive subgroup uh, that that could potentially benefit in the future. So, you know, wh wh whether the overall trial is positive or negative, you know, what what do we what do we do with these subgroups, and uh, do we draw firm conclusions or do we do more trials? And I understand that there may be a limited number of trials that we can do, but uh, you know, I you know, I guess I would ask for both the clinical and the statistical view of this. Is the subgroup da data ever strong enough to call it definitive? Well, that's uh, I think you've really capsulized the question for the the next podcast <laughs> because we're not going to answer it today for sure. But I I, I really want to take uh, a moment to thank our speakers and and our discussion today it was uh, terrific and if we take one point away from this i think is could we standardize the approach to subgroup analysis and i think that's what brian really pushed forth in the uh, in our session on friday and I, i'd like to see us advance that as a, a collaboratory initiative but uh more to come on subgroups. Uh, Dr. Carson, uh, we couldn't get you on. You're driving, I know, but we're going we're to bring you back to uh, talk about the V-heft, A-heft story, which is a 30-minute story in and of itself. <laughs> and and we want to make sure that we actually get to see you and, and not Sammy driving your Tesla. So thank you all for being here this afternoon and uh, have a great day. Thank you.